Welcome to At The Core, the intersection between neuroscience and fitness, where I have the great opportunity to speak to high performance movers and learn more about their experiences in how they connect mindful movement. Today's guest is Dan Edwards. Dan is a founder and CEO of Parkour Generations a multi-award winning and multinational organization for parkour and has studied practical movement and physical fitness his entire life with an elite background in fighting arts before finding parkour. Dan created the global recognized ADAPT parkour coaching qualification, which has been delivered in over 35 countries, as well as the parkour fitness specialist certification and the Worldwide Parkour for Schools program. Dan was also central to the creation and success of the world's first national governing body for the discipline, Parkour UK. His education programs have been accredited by numerous international bodies and across a 20 year career in teaching and coaching, Dan has delivered courses, workshops and events to tens of thousands of people in more than 30 countries, helping many go on to become certified parkour or fitness professionals themselves through his program. We will be continuing to watch a little bit more to understand what parkour is, the misunderstandings and the misgivings, how it relates directly to neuroplasticity and how one can approach it at any age and at any level. So here's a little bit more through this video that you can understand what the body is capable and the fact that we have very few limits. Dan, I would like to welcome you to At The Core. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So I'm going to start with one of the most common things for people that are not familiar with parkour, the misunderstanding that it is for teenage males that are hoodlums running around private property, reckless abandonment. And I couldn't be farther from that. You couldn't be farther from that. Um, anytime I had personal training with parkour, it was very deliberate, repetitive, conscientious. It always had a very huge mark on watching safety and alignment and repeating that and rinse and repeat constantly. So there was a quote by Aristotle that states, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is not an act, but a habit. And what most people don't know about parkour is everything outside of the 15 seconds of Instagram. Can you explain a little bit more about parkour to those unfamiliar? Sure, yeah, and you're absolutely right um, in terms of those misunderstandings. Um, parkour is a discipline of, of movement and self-improvement through movement challenge, really. It came from France in the suburbs of Paris in the, in the sort of late 80s, early 90s was when it was created. Um, and it wasn't at all to do with, you know, um, anarchy or anti-establishment stuff or showing off because this was long before YouTube and Instagram and social media existed. It was a group of, um, of, of young people who wanted to sort of explore their limits and find out what they could do, um, explore the environment and, um, and, and in, experience their freedom in an urban 
predominantly urban setting in the suburbs of Paris. Um, so it was very much about this sort of self-knowledge, this search for self-knowledge. Um, and that was the origin of parkour. That was what it was like when I found it, because I, I found because I'm old, I found it, you know, before YouTube existed or whatever. So that was how I encountered it. And and um, that's how we've continued to teach it and, and spread it around the world. Um, the media obviously um, really likes the spectacular angle and the the, the sort of the stunt potential of it. So that's why, you know, on Instagram, social media and, and the movies and that, it showcases this very high, um, high level athletic, sort of high risk, um, uh, you know, uh, adrenaline type sport. It's pitch showcased as that um, because it because it looks so spectacular when, with, when you can when you can train at that level. But but absolutely, that isn't um, that's just the very, very tip of the iceberg. That's what you can do with parkour. And that's one thing that is done with it, a tiny, tiny thing. But that's just one product of a much deeper um, and more profound discipline, which is what we train and what we teach. And I think what's um, interesting about parkour is that each body is different. Each limb length is different. And so how you go about your obstacle, how you go about moving through your space is always going to be a very unique experience. And you know, yes, there's body dimensions and skill set and even what your creative outlet allows you, what what you are willing to experience and creatively go about in that obstacle course. There are also other things to analyze in how to approach parkour. And those would be considered timing, coordination, balance, speed, visual acuity, which a lot of people don't consider. And proprioceptive awareness, uh, the idea of understanding where we are in space. How are those trained rather than just focusing on the jumps and walking on bars and swinging off of bars? How is the aspect of visual acuity, proprioceptive awareness, balance, which is our neural hierarchies trained through parkour? Yeah, and again, really good understanding there that the, um, that's exactly right. So we have a saying in, in our programs, um, of uh, attributes before technique. So what we mean by that is that you should train and teach as a coach as well, you should teach this way, but when you're practicing, you should train to develop good physical and movement attributes rather than just trying to acquire techniques and skills. Um, and the attributes is that's our way of saying things like, yeah, strength, power, agility, mobility, coordination, balance, flexibility, um, precision, accuracy, you know, all these, these are the attributes and qualities of good movement. And if you focus your training around developing those things, um, as well as other concepts such as um, uh, exploration and discovery and, and creativity and, and vision and these kind of things, um, if you train to develop those aspects, those principles and values and attributes, techniques will come very easily to you. So whereas if you train the other way around, if you train to learn techniques, not only in parkour, but in any discipline, if you just focus on individual techniques, you may develop those techniques, but you won't necessarily build a, a good, well-rounded body of attributes. So it will be harder for you to adapt to other things later. So in physical education terms, this is called, um, you know, physical literacy rather than skill mm -hmm. acquisition. And developing general physical literacy is definitely healthier 
and something you should definitely do first, especially as a young person, but you should also maintain the whole way through your life. And if you are a physically literate person, you will find it very easy to learn any skill or any technique from any sport or activity that you want to. Um, so th that's absolutely key is training those things. How do we do it? We, we will use language around those things. So we help people understand that we are looking to develop uh, you know, this attribute here rather than this specific technique. We may use some of the techniques to train these attributes, but really we're, we're getting them to understand these. Are, this is what we want you to focus on developing is speed or power or balance or, or adaptability or whatever. Um, and the way we tr uh, actually train them is through what we what is known as constraints-based learning or, or task-oriented training, we sometimes call it, which is we tend to, the, the way parkour was born, and this is how we still teach it, is um, we give people movement challenges and movement problems to solve. And then in the solving of that problem, they may utilize a technique or they may create their own technique, but the, the problem will require a number of attributes to be able to solve. It might require a lot of strength or a lot of endurance or a lot of balance or a lot of um, flexibility. And they will have to find a way to use their body and whatever attributes they possess to solve that problem. And that generally creates a more adaptive, capable mover than someone that simply focuses on, on technique. Um, so yeah, I certainly think building those attributes is, is hugely important, but the practice of parkour in itself, which is effectively, um, if you strip it down to its most utilitarian base, it's really just um, functional locomotion patterns for a human being, you know, running, jumping, crawling, climbing, swinging, vaulting, rolling, dropping, these are, these are just foundational locomotion patterns that get us from A to B in any environment. If you get a human being to do lots of that um, and just that, then they will develop really good uh, functional strength, good agility, good mobility, good um, proprioception, good coordination, good balance, good control of fear, um, because this is exactly what the body and brain has evolved to do. So we're just giving it the, the, the movement nutrition that the brain, particularly the brain wants um, and if you give the body that, you end up with a good mover, which is why cultures that are, you know, older than ours and, and less, um, let's say, industrialized, less dependent on technology, um, those cultures are often uh, very fit, healthy individuals for, you know, the whole of their life into their 70s, 80s, 90s, even into their, their, their over a century of age. They will stay fit and healthy and active because they've been just following these movement patterns, these foundational movement patterns their whole life. Never, never seen a gym never had any understanding mm. about nutrition patterns or anything, but you know, what well, they're what known as blue zones, I suppose, the, these, these people. Um, and, you know, they're generally the healthiest human beings there are. So, and all they're doing is, is following natural movement patterns, which is what we do in parkour. We just, in parkour, we've just taken it to another level, I suppose, um, by training it, as you say, very rigorously and bringing in real discipline to that and repetition and iteration. Um, and that has allowed um, us to sort of explore um, the human potential for movement, which which I think parkour is showcasing a, a new a new understanding of human of human movement potential in many ways. That's amazing. So I'm going to go back a little bit. You mentioned about this physical literacy, and you talked about giving challenges. And with neuroplasticity or this idea of brain change, the best way to create and fire new neurons is for play, exploration, as you said, and challenges you know, learning, growing, and then ultimately succeeding at it and, and learning something new. And we always say that, that that neuroplastic change takes place 
just outside your comfort zone, but within your capable zone. Yes. And to work within that, that smaller sphere, constantly pushing our boundaries. So obviously parkour does this. How do you do this in a way? How do you approach parkour as a whole where you're very much outside your comfort zone, but understanding as your own athlete, as your own body, what's within your capable zone? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and it's exactly right. The, 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 the band of growth in any discipline um, for a human being is, is a thin band that is um, a, a relationship between your level of skill and the level of difficulty of the challenge. Um, and if, that, if, that, if you can keep people in that band, um, so it's not too difficult where it becomes overly frustrating and it's not too easy where it becomes just a comfort zone and they're just easily repeating it. If you can keep them in that band where they have to stay focused and they have to unite all of their faculties, um, you know, their, their, their thinking as well as their physicality, as well as their um, perception and, and, and all these things. You have to bring in all these faculties together, body and mind and, and spirit, I suppose. Um, if you can keep someone in that band where they need all those things, um, that's where they're more likely to enter the flow state. Um, and that is where you are more likely to see growth. That's the optimal learning state for the human brain, right? So um, we keep them, we do that by... Uh, first of all, assessing where someone is at at the moment um, and then providing a scaled um, uh, a scaled structure of challenges uh, in whatever field we're working on that day with them. It could be a, a jump challenge. It could be a climbing challenge. It could be a, a flow challenge. It could be a, a physical endurance challenge, whatever. It could be a complexity challenge. But we would scale those challenges in terms of com in terms of difficulty, which is often done through complexity. Um, uh, to, 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 to progress them gradually. So they achieve, and only when they've achieved one and they're, they're comfort, that then becomes their comfort zone, then do we stretch them into the next one. But we, we all, we're always stretching them in some way in every session because you're exactly right. Without that stretching, there won't be any growth. Um, so we're always looking to stretch them. Uh, and, and the fact is that the human being, you are effectively what we are, is a, a very complex system of systems, right? So we are... We've got multiple systems in the human body and they all interact all of the time and the brain governs the whole lot. But uh, we're a very complex organism. And the only way to help, a, the only way to feed a complex organism in terms of growth is to provide it with complex stimuli and complex challenges. Um, yes. So if you simplify everything it's exposed to, it actually it actually dumbs it down because because the organism is no longer being uh, fed what it wants. So it won't grow. It won't get any stronger. It'll actually get more limited and more stupid and, and, and worse. So um, parkour is, 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 a, is a really, because it's self-scaling, because especially with kids, because they typically don't choose to do things that are way beyond their comfort zone um, because kids kind of naturally listen to their fear in a very sensible way, most kids. Um, uh, because it's self-scaling like that, it's a great way for um, people to constantly come up against a challenge, but a challenge they can probably overcome if they stick at it. Um, and so you see this regular daily pattern of being pulled out of your comfort zone, fighting hard to, to complete the challenge, completing the challenge, resting, and then the next day trying to starting again. And that's why yeah. there's been such rapid growth in parkour, and not only parkour, but a lot of the lifestyle sports um you know such as um skateboarding and motocross and wingsuiting or whatever they've seen you know astronomical meteoric growth yeah. in terms of what they're doing um and it's because of this 
constantly stepping out of the comfort zone and constantly being pulled into that flow state um, and needing to be in that flow state to be able to perform it. And that's a huge difference is that parkour and, you know, motocross, wingsuiting, whatever, all these, all these kind of, let's say, potential high consequence activities, right? Because they're, they're not more dangerous than other sports statistically. They're not high risk, but they, they look as if there's a high consequence. Um, uh, these activities, while you can be in flow playing any sport, you can be in flow playing football or, or tennis or, or playing chess, while you can be in flow doing those things, you don't need to be in flow to do those things. Right? But to do parkour regularly, you need to be in flow to be able to do it, mm-hmm. um, to be able to do it and keep yourself, you know, bump free and bruise free. Um, yeah. It requires you to be in flow. So it's pushing you into flow more of the time, which is probably why the acceleration of progression in our discipline has been so ridiculously quick. If you look back over the last 20 years, yeah, you know, amazing. What, what athletes are doing now is t- 10 years ago, we, we even as parkour practitioners, 10 years ago, we would not have thought it was possible to do what practitioners are doing now. You know, um, it, it's quite incredible. Um, so, and that, that I think is down to that flow state um, and, um, and the complex, to come back to your original question, the putting complex challenges in front of people continuously and asking them to solve it um, and not holding their hand too much through it, you know, letting their brain <laughs> figure it out and go through the ugly stage of, of being frustrated by it for a bit, but, you know, working through it, working through it and then getting it. That, that's very important. I remember I would have this um, constant cycle taking place uh, with my coach. And I remember this one specific instance of, learning to jump off of something and it's it started with learning the shoulder roll and then you know that was for a while and then on this one specific day it it, that that comfort zone capable zone comfort zone capable zone working in that bandwidth expanded and changed so quickly in that 40 minutes Mm, yes but but you know he said okay so we're going to jump off this one foot block high block and you're going to land and you're going to shoulder roll out of it. And I was scared out of my mind. I I don't know how standing on a one foot block and jumping off of it, but then having to roll out of it was just so outside my comfort zone. Well sure. within my capable zone, far oh, yeah. outside my comfort zone. And, and so I did it. I squealed a little bit like a pig as I was jumping down. And, and you know, it, it was like, oh, 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 it happened. And I'm fine. I'm, I'm unscathed. It was not that big of a deal. I don't know why I thought it was a big deal. And so, you know, two more repetitions and my coach put me on the two foot block and, and two more repetitions. He put me on the four foot block and two more repetitions. He put me on the six foot wall and then it became the eight foot wall. And within 15 minutes, I was doing, you know, having to run up the 14 foot wall and step up and jump off the 16 foot wall. And again, I got up there and I was like, I shouldn't be doing this. And he's like, how is this any different? It's a different height. It's a different distance. The technique is all the same. And it was going through those steps and working through those steps. And, um, and it was amazing. It was an amazing feeling of accomplishment. It was an amazing feeling realizing that just 20 minutes ago, what I thought was my capable space was completely different and um it was really really how it all changed yeah it's um and and you're you know you're not 
not the only one to experience that. We we all experienced that when we came to parkour, I think, and and everyone does now when they come in. They, they typically they will, you know, look at, at the beginning of the session or the beginning of the class. They will kind of when they, when the coach tells them what they're going to be doing, a lot of people will sort of be like, no, there's no way I'm going to do that. By the end of the class, they're doing it, you know, comfortably as as a training drill, and then they sort of look back and check that and go, wow, you know, two hours ago I didn't think I could do do that at all, and I could do it quite comfortably. And the reality is that the potential that human beings have for movement is is far, far, far beyond for the majority of humans, unless you're one of the elite athletes pushing the boundaries. The majority of humans um, are nowhere near using their full movement potential. Nowhere near. Like the, the, the hardware and the software that we have for movement uh, as a human being is is incredible and, and, and is the most adaptive um, hardware and software of any animal in the world um which is why we arguably why we dominated the planet and and managed to live in every type of terrain and environment so we're incredibly adaptive um organisms and we in in the city in the modern world certainly in the industrialized world we don't use any of it we let technology do everything for us so people don't are just not aware of what their potential is and and what they are not only their potential but they're actually capable of already you know, even before going to like, what are you potentially capable of if you train? But what you're capable of now is is vastly beyond what, what, what you think, what most people think. So parkour really, the first step, what it does for most people is just make them realize that, you know, okay, I, I have a body that can do incredible things. Um, mm -hmm. And then once they reach the limit of that, then it's a question of well, how far do you want to take it? Like, you know, what do you want to do with it now? Um, but you can do, you know, uh, absolutely amazing things um and you can look at well, and a lot disciplines of to, to see that as well not just buckle well and a lot of that limit is because of fear so you know i have i have two branches to this question one is how do we approach that and i think a lot of it has been discussed of course you know as you drill these exercises you're given these smaller levels that's how one aspect we deal with fear if you have any other thoughts on that but also having gone through it not succeeding, you know, thinking it was in your capable zone and failing, hurting yourself and having to psychologically, not just physically rehab to approach that again. How does one go about that in parkour? Um, so there's both very good questions. Um, the fear question is is something, you know, I'm, I'm hugely into the science of fear and the study of that and, and the, and the, and the uh, the embodied practice of fear, let's say, which in some ways parkour is a good example of, of an embodied practice of fear. Um, but, you know, and as you say, the best, the, 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 probably the best remedy for fear is exactly what, um, you know, therapists use for fear, which is microdosing. So we, you know, expose people to fear on, on a, in a small way, regularly. Yeah, that threat inoculation. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then eventually they get used to it and it goes away. It stops being something they're afraid of. So um, that that is part of it. So we will gradually, if someone comes and they're afraid of heights, we'll start them off, uh, you know, on a one, as you did, one foot block, a two foot block, a three foot block. Um, and bit by bit, they get used to being a height um, and the fear of heights goes away. So one element is microdosing. Um, a second element dealing with fear is just um, starting to understand and reframe fear and realizing that it's not a negative thing. It's just an emotion, the same as all your other emotions. And you have to engage with it the same as you're encouraged to engage with all your other emotions, not suppress it. So you have to spend time with it and, and, and face it and, you know, try and understand it. What is it trying to tell me this emotion? Um, what, what's the, what's it shouting at me for? 
Um, and once you listen to it and then start to talk back to it in a strange way, um, then it starts to uh, back off because it's just there, like all emotions, it's just there as a kind of a, a warning system in response to your environment. So, uh, or, or something that's happening at that stage. So as long as you acknowledge it and say, thanks for the warning, but I've got this and I feel comfortable with it. I've got the strength, I've got the skill and I'm, I'm all good. Then the fear often calms down. So it's about creating a relationship and a, a dialogue with fear um, and getting people to understand that it's not a bad thing, fear. It's it's, it's just an emotion. It's neither bad nor good. Um, it's just something that is, a, and if you understand that, it's a very useful tool. Um, so that's the first step is we try and reframe people's um understanding of fear um, and then we get them to experience it fairly regularly so they can microdose um, uh, the second one injuries and things like that yes i mean of course if you're using the body in any way um, vigorously for any sport any discipline you know any any athletic pursuit there is the chance that um, you're going to fall over every now and again you're going to get hurt you know accidents happen you make mistakes sometimes you push too hard too far sometimes there are emotional reasons why you get hurt whatever whatever the reasons at some stage if you're getting serious about using your body you're going to find some 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 niggles some some bruises some injuries some some overuse stuff whatever um mm. and again our approach to that is to help people understand that all that is is feedback all injury is is feedback that's it it's not a bad thing it's not a good thing it's just feedback it's feedback on what you did and it didn't have an outcome that you wanted. It didn't have an optimal outcome that you intended. What? And the question then is, use that feedback. Why? What is what is it trying to tell you? So, for example, if your knees start hurting after years of running, mm. you know, you can either complain about it and go, oh, God damn it, I'm going to try and, you know, I need to get better shoes or whatever. The best thing to do is to go, all right, this is feedback. My, my body is trying to tell me, my brain rather, because pain is a brain thing, right? My brain is trying to tell me that, what I'm doing is suboptimal. So obviously my running technique is wrong or the surface I'm running on is wrong or the, or the amount of running I'm doing is wrong, but something is wrong. And the pain is just my brain saying, oh, you need to attend to this. You need to listen to this and you need to change it. So it's just feedback. So don't, don't beat yourself up about it. Don't beat your body up about it. Um, don't get angry about it. It's feedback. An acute injury, say you miss a jump and you, you know, crack your shin or whatever, very common in buckle when you're starting out. Um, uh, you know, again, you can you can scream and shout and, and blame yourself or blame the wall or whatever. But the reality is, okay, that's feedback. Some Something that I'm doing is not quite right. Either I don't have the skill yet to be doing a jump that accurately, or I don't have the um, consistency yet to be repeating it that well, or I don't have the strength to land it, you know, safely or whatever. But it's giving you some sort of feedback in, and that feedback is gold dust. So we actually see injuries in a way in a positive light because they've always got a very important message for you that you should listen to. Um, and sometimes it's not just physical. It's one of the most, in my experience, I mean, I've taught martial arts and parkour now for like 30 years, um, I suppose, starting with martial arts and then parkour. Um, and I've trained them at a pretty high level for, for the same amount of time or, or longer. Um, and my experience now of when people get injured, is that almost always it's a psychological thing um, uh, or an emotional thing rather than a physical kind of just a random physical thing. It's normally, if you dig deep enough, there's normally some kind of psychological reason behind that fall or that long-term injury they've got or something like that. And digging into that will normally provide you the solution. To give an example, 
if someone falls down in a, in a class, you know, it's quite common. You might see someone training in a class and they miss a jump and they get hurt. And you go over to them and you say, okay, what happened there? And, and they'll say, oh, I just missed a jump. You, you go a bit deeper and say, well, what, why did you miss the jump? And they'll be like, well, you know, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't really concentrating. Why weren't you concentrating? Well, my, my, my girlfriend left me today, you know, okay. Now we're getting to the reason of why you got injured. It wasn't that you just missed the jump is that you were training while in an emotionally distracted state. And that is the cause of your injury. So the feedback is don't train when you're emotionally distracted. <laughs> That's the feedback. Right. Um, and, and that is, super powerful i think once people start to understand that they they listen to their bodies much more they 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 train much more sensibly um and they they're much more much more holistic approach and they're far right. less likely to get injured so you find i mean i i have that question right there's always there's always things there's always distractions there's always you know as you you talk about getting into this flow state you know injuries do happen especially at these high levels I realized with some of the injuries that I have had, it, it's very true. It's exactly that. Either it was the combination of I wasn't actually prepared for it, or most commonly my injuries were due to exhaustion. I should have stopped 15 minutes before I did, and I didn't. I was having a good time, and that was when the injury happened. Um, it was yeah. usually exhaustion and not paying attention to it. Or, you know, one of the injuries I had, it was a move I've done a million times, and it wasn't something that I should have had any trouble with, but we were playing tag. And right. so I was moving at a faster clip than I thought I could. I felt this inclination. Maybe it was as simple as ego to have to, you know, move faster. And and suddenly I got injured. And it is very interesting. And And knowing it, I knew it. The psychological aspect of do I return? Do I return to that sport? Because can I shed myself of those issues? Can I shed myself of those emotional con constraints to keep myself from getting injured in the future? Yeah, I mean, that's the, it's, it's really good that you're able to observe that about yourself. Um, and the key, you know, the key one there is ego. You know, if, 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 um, if I was to pinpoint anything as the leading cause of injury in any sport or physical activity, I would say it's, it's people's egos. That's what causes them to get injured. And in parkour, for example, it's when people are showing off for the camera, you know, or for their kind of get the best Instagram video or showing off because there's a, you know, they're a guy and there's a good looking girl watching or, or they're just trying to impress their mates or whatever. The amount of times people get injured for that reason, you know, and you can then say, oh, it's because of the skill or that it's not. It's because of your ego. You're trying stuff you're not ready mm -hmm. to do and the ego is driving that. So deal with the ego and all these injuries will go away because you won't be in this weird state of mind where you have to show off. So in order to come back to something, it doesn't, I mean, it really doesn't matter whether, they, whether you come back to it or not. What, what matters is, have you dealt with the, this is an opportunity to deal with the root problem, which is the ego and all the emotional issues that you've got going on. This is just a, a mirror on those and giving you an opportunity to look at those, put them in the spotlight and deal with them. And if you deal with them, it doesn't matter if you go back to that sport or not. You go off and do, anything, do something else. But probably if you deal with them, you will then go back to that sport because you'll have nothing holding you back from doing it. So getting back on the horse, you know, that 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 old phrase mm -hmm. is, is a sensible thing. Um, but um, it's not it, you shouldn't just get back on the horse. It shouldn't just be about, well, I'm just going to keep training. It should be, well, hang on, let's let's reflect a bit on what caused that, um, because there could be something really important to learn from that that will prevent you doing it again. And the thing is, if you get back on the horse and you don't deal with the, the root cause, probably it's just a matter of time before you get injured again, um, yeah. which is which yeah. is what happens. And, and the, 
you know the body is uh, or, or the world the experience life whatever you want to, whatever you want to call say is the cause of this but uh it, it's pretty ruthless about that if you don't get the message the first time it will give you a harder lesson and a harder lesson and a harder lesson until you finally get the message. Um, so it's better to learn it the first time and, and be done with it. So I am, um, you know, my experience was the only female with 400 guys in a indoor parkour gym. I wow. was easily a decade older than the, the male average. You, however, um, have managed to grow probably the largest female audience and practitioners in the world. And I will not say that lightly by saying you have the most women in the world. I've seen some of the Women London events that have taken place, and that's about as more girls that I've ever seen do parkour, you know, on any given random day or time at the gym that I had gone to. Um, right. Do you train them differently, mentally, physically? Is there a difference based on that? Um, so I personally, um, don't, I wouldn't say I have a specific, as a coach, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I have a specific, um, you know, uh, paradigm that's different for, for, for male and female practitioners or whatever. I, I tend to see human beings as people first and as, you know, sexual gender kind of a distant second. <laughs> um, but they're human beings first and human beings have far more in common with each other than they do difference. So, um, if you understand the psychology generally of human beings and how humans learn, so the science of learning and therefore the science of teaching, then um, you can pr you can pretty much just create a good teaching paradigm that will work for any, every human being, which is effectively a feedback loop. You just look to create feedback loops, right? So it's just about what's the best feedback loop for this individual human, for this person um, and their psychological state. So I, I don't necessarily have a difference between teaching men and women. Um, however, there are... Um, uh, there are reasons why you might, why groups of women might want to train together uh, amongst only women. Um, and, and, and actually that was pretty integral early on, you know, 15 years ago to creating the, the amazing um, uh, women's parkour scene that we have was creating environments where women could go and train only with other women because that broke down a lot of the sort of barriers to entry that, that women saw, especially adult women, where they thought exactly what you experienced. I don't want to go along and do something with those 16 year old boys. Um, whereas they knew if they went to this class or this event, there would only be um, their peer group there. Uh, then, you know, suddenly you had hundreds of women joining the training. Um, and then once that community had built up, they then um, easily transitioned across into the other classes. And now we have roughly 50% male and female in every class, which is awesome, right? So um, just as many women that want to train as there are men, they, there were just far more barriers to entry um, and uh, in terms of their perception. Um, so we just try to make it more inclusive. Um, some coaches do kind of have a slight difference in how they approach it. And obviously there are, there are some, you know, uh, differences anatomically between men and women. So some movements men are going to naturally um, uh, move towards and some movements women are going to naturally move towards. Um, and, and therefore, you might have a system that kind of in the early sessions encourages the use of their strengths because that builds confidence and success breeds success. Right. So you want them to succeed early. So you might give um, women practitioners more uh, balance challenges, for example, because women typically are better at balance than men when they begin. 
because they have a lower center of gravity and all that sort of stuff. So that will make them feel very confident. They can suddenly achieve this balance stuff, even, and they can see the men can't do it as well. And they'll suddenly be like, this is awesome. So you give them more of that and they succeed and then you introduce everything else. Men, for example, they like to, their strength is more in their chest and shoulders, upper body. Mm. So they, they're better at pulling themselves over things and climbing stuff. And, they're, and they, they've got, you know, a lot of power. So especially young men. So they like to use their power and do big jumps. Um, so you give a little bit of that to them, a little bit of power and strength based stuff. Um, and, and that hooks them. And then later on, you might introduce the more kind of, let's say sophisticated stuff like balance and the flow and all that sort of stuff, which, which the women might take to more, more naturally than the men. So there might be some reasons why anatomically, you know, you kind of go, well, that's like different. Um, and therefore it's gives them different things at different times. Um, but on the whole, um, the, the, the differences in the methods are again, are, are far smaller than the similarities. Um, and, you know, we've seen, so many good women practitioners um, come through the training um, and they go on to coach and they don't coach very differently from the men. Some of them are way tougher mm -hmm. than the men as coaches, way harder. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, they, they, you know, they, um, they don't necessarily have a different system. Um, psychologically, there, there are some differences, obviously, between a man coaching and a woman coaching. So, uh, and, and, and a woman coach is probably more, more likely to understand some of the needs of a woman practitioner um, and vice versa. So, and that's normal and, and perfectly natural. But as a coach, again, it's more, uh, you know, whether you're a male coach, female coach, whatever, it's like, you must be able to coach everyone. So if you're, if you're a man and you can only coach men, you're a bad coach. <laughs> if you're a woman, you can only <laughs> coach women, you're a bad coach. I mean, you, you need to be able to coach everyone. So understand there are psychological differences broad psychological differences but the similarities far outweigh the differences so bringing it back to neuroscience the the thalamus i consider the grand central station for the brain it's where all information is passed through and relayed to the cortices the cortices as they the cortical activation will always tap into some portion of the thalamus and it's a it's a very unique anatomy of its own within the brain. And oftentimes we see that the, the weakened thalamus or a less developed, less integrated thalamus would lead to chronic pain, um, shows up in neurological movement disorders such as Parkinson's or tics like Tourette syndrome. And yet it has been shown in many white paper studies that obstacle training enhances and um, improves the thalamus. So my question to you is for that individual that has Parkinson's, the, the, the age group of the 40 plus, even the 70 plus, you know, whether they're going to be doing these, you know, 10 foot gaps, six feet high and all this kind of stuff, how do they incorporate a sense of the parkour methodology into their fitness training, into their wellness training to improve brain health function and overall physical development? It's a, again, great question. And, and it's something that we have um, uh, really loved doing. So we, we did before the pandemic, um, you know, we did a lot of work with uh, a guy called Carl Sterling, who's um, 
who um, is a, a, a Parkinson's regeneration expert. Um, so we did a lot of sessions and workshops where, where we would use parkour, we called it parkour for Parkinson's, where we would use parkour sessions for people with Parkinson's um, to, to, to strengthen their movement skills um, and to give them, again, enough complexity that it would start to sort of, um, uh, you know, retrain the brain in terms of movement or at least restore some of the movement capacities they had. And, the, and it, they were very successful. So we, 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 we're at the moment, you know, in the stage of developing that system, um, it was yeah. on hold because of the pandemic really, but, um, but we were seeing a lot of results of it. And Carl, um, who I should definitely get you with, um, is, uh, he's, he's, you know, a great, uh, authority on that stuff. Um, and you know, he absolutely immediately recognized the, uh, the benefits of parkour for, for those neural reasons, exactly as you're describing. Um, and, the reason is pretty, and, and the way you do it is actually is actually um, quite simple. Which is that uh, again, it comes down to what is the type of nutrition that the brain uh, wants. What did it evolve to do? It the brain evolved in in movement terms. It it evolved to move us over and across terrain safely, variable terrain, uh, in order to get us from one place to another, right? To eat or to breed or for a shelter or whatever but it basically that's what it's that's what the body the body is for is to get from one place to another and to adapt to variable terrain and the needs of that terrain so if you give the brain that it responds to it incredibly quickly because that's what it that's what it's looking for that's what it's that's what it's designed to do so if you give it that nutrition it will respond and the complexity is about the right level for it in terms of spatial um, awareness of having to, you know, adapt to obstacles, even if they don't have to be for the parkour of Parkinson's, there's nothing at all height and there's nothing crazy at all. It's simply a case of putting obstacles in the path that they have to negotiate either through gripping bars and, and pulling themselves around them or lowering themselves down and going under something or finding a way to climb over a low box and doing that in a circuit. So they string them together. Um, you'd be amazed at the beginning of the session, they, you know, a lot of these, um, Participants will have trouble um, doing the most basic movement skills. But by the end of the session, they're moving through this route, you know, climbing around stuff, going under stuff, going over stuff, walking along um, thin obstacles to balance, you know, thinner obstacles to balance. Um, and very quickly, they adapt to it. And that's because that's what their brain has evolved to do. And it has been probably starved of that for most of, not, not only most of their adult life, because they won't have done that. Most adults don't do that sort of stuff. Um, but also, especially since they got since they started to degenerate, that stuff's been taken away from them even more. So the degeneration happens quicker. So you've got to put that stuff back in, you know, and again, these, yeah, absolutely. these cultures, the blue zone cultures and these, these sort of other, uh, the pre-industrial societies, they have very little cases of this sort of stuff because their brain is always moving and always being challenged and always being stimulated in that movement sense. Um, so it always stays good at movement it's always given the nutrition for it so it's it's an incredibly good tool um to counter that stuff um but the best tool to counter it is to not stop doing it but like you do it naturally as a kid you go and play but then as adults we stop doing anything like that we stop yeah. playing and, and we don't hunt either we don't you know we don't gather we don't fight we don't do any of the stuff that the body is designed to do so you've got it the best solution is just keep that stuff going and then you're much less likely to have those neural problems later in life Right. And this is amazing. I, I know we just barely scratched the surface and though we hit so many of these points. So I'm going to take it to a little bit of a lighter round. 
which I call my lightning round. And I have right. questions for you and it's going to be off the top of your head. What comes to mind first? Okay. I'm scared. Okay. <laughs> All right. So are you ready? Yes. Working out morning, afternoon, or night? Uh, afternoon. Sweet or salty? Sweet. Planks or squats? Squats. Shoes or barefoot? Barefoot. Coffee or tea? Both. Beach or mountains? Mountains for sure. Music or silence? Both. Both. Heat or cold? Cold. Inside or outside? Outside. Jasmine or peppermint? Jasmine. Spontaneous or planned? Planned spontaneity. <laughs> Learn something new or perfect something known? Um, perfect something new, probably. All right. Dan, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to open it up to you. Is there anything you would like to share with the audience? Any information about your programs, things you're working on, or anything we didn't touch on that you thought was important for the audience to know? Uh, I'll probably just bring it back to, to sort of what you said about your, you know, your one, your ratio of one in 400 thing, which is to, you know, to remind people and to, um, encourage them that uh what we do parkour and movement and uh, and play you know it's just really a, a serious form of play what we do um is for everyone you know it's definitely not just for kids it's definitely not just for young male athletes um parkour is is just about refining and improving and enjoying your movement wherever it's at wherever you start from it's about going on that beginning that journey um and it, Absolutely anyone can do that as long as you're breathing and alive, you know, anyone can do that and can engage with it. So if anyone's out there listening to this thinking, oh, parkour was never for me and I, I love watching it, but I don't want to do it, you know, uh, throw that thinking out and, and go and start, go and train, go and find a community. Most communities around the world are incredibly inclusive, incredibly welcoming. Um, but even if you haven't got a community, just go outside and start exploring your space, seeing what your body and your and your brain can achieve. Remember what it was like to be a kid. What would you have done as a kid? Um, and then build a bit of that back into your training and your and your daily movement um, routines. And you, you will see a benefit. You see a huge benefit. So uh, it's absolutely for everyone. And we, we want that kind of one in 400 thing to, to go away <laughs> um, and for it to be more everyone to, to be able to experience what we experience here, which is that, you know, parkour is for everyone and you can have all different types in a class. This has been amazing, eye-opening, encouraging, and almost, you know, titillating to want to get out there myself. Hopefully, all of you listening, you realize that it is for you absolutely 100%, regardless of your skill set, your age. There is no limitations because movement is for everyone. And Dan, thank you so much. Thank you for joining At The Core. Thank you very much, Misha. It's been an absolute pleasure.